Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I do love the rhythm in language, and I I think it's an important part of it, even in in prose, any kind that's there to, to try and persuade, seduce, beguile, charm, or delight a reader, that there is a there is a sound element to it, and most readers vaguely hear it tinkling in the back of their head. Certainly my favourite writers are always very, have a kind of music to them. It can be a very, uh, a very stark and bleak music in some cases of writers who are not ornamental, but it, it's nonetheless a kind of music. Stephen Fry loves words, but he does more than love them. He puts them together in ways that so delight readers that a blog or a tweet by him can get hundreds of thousands of people hanging on his every keystroke. As an actor, he's brought to life every kind of theatrical writing from sketch comedy to classics. He's performed in everything from game shows to the British audiobook version of Harry Potter. And always with a rich intelligence and searching eye. His latest books tell the stories of ancient Greek myths in ways that seem as fresh as your morning coffee. Stephen, I'm so glad that you're going to be doing this show with me because... As you probably know, we talk a lot about communication on this show, and there's hardly anybody I know in the world who communicates more than you do and better than you do. That's very good. And now, of course, is the time that I will lose all possible articulacy and ability (laughs) to put one word after another in the service of a sentence. Not someone who uses the word articulacy. (laughs) Not possible. (laughs) But it it is true, as you, I'm sure, know, but those of us who do speak for a living, because it's not something that's ever exactly taught, there are times when you're about to go on a stage or stand up after a dinner or something when a little demon inside you says, you don't know what you're going to say, do you? You're going to stand there with your mouth opening and closing like a guppy fish and nothing will come out. I had that feeling while I was doing a play in London about uh, 25 years ago. Really? And I was, it was the stage manager. The character was the stage manager in our town. Oh! So almost his entire part is spoken to the audience, so you don't get any cues. No. You give all the cues you give yourself. And I heard that malicious voice in the back of my head during a matinee that said, what makes you think you'll remember the next line? Oh, it's killing It was the it? devil talking, I tell you. I immediately started sweating torrents. Yeah, it's the and worst feeling. And then I got the line. 
got the line out, and then I heard the voice say, yeah, you got that line. What makes you think you'll get the next one? <laughs> and, and as I'm sure you probably share, I think all actors share this, and I'm sure all humans share it, but in with sort of different scenarios, and that is uh, anxiety dreams in which you're standing in the wings and about to go on stage of a play that you haven't even rehearsed, and someone puts the book in your hand, and you, you don't even have time to learn the first speech. You don't know a single line. Have you ever had that dream? I had probably the, the worst version of it. I was in a Shakespeare play walking on a parapet with a leading lady, and I didn't know what I was supposed to say, but I noticed that she had a silver mirror with all her lines engraved <laughs> on the back of the mirror. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll get away with it. I'll look at her mirror. And then I realized she only had her lines. <laughs> oh, end of everything. It's, it's interesting to me that you're... You seem to have the ability to talk about anything at any moment <laughs> and, and, with, and with depth and interest and put thoughts together. I mean, you could just get up tonight and tell one of the Greek myths that you've told so brilliantly <laughs> in your two books about Greek myths. What, what, what drew you to those myths? Well, I've always loved them. As a boy, they were one of the first kind of story that I really, really fell for. I mean, I enjoyed Lewis Carroll and A.A. Um, a. Milne and, and uh, Treasure Island and, and, you know, the usual sort of things that an English child might be read to or encouraged to read. But it was the Greek myth that lit a fire inside me that never quite went out. Um, and it was about two years ago. I was at a, just at a friend's house. We were, we were eating. And for some reason, the conversation came around to origin myths or something. And I started to tell the story of Uranus, which children like to pronounce Uranus, as we all know, and the, 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 the original <laughs> sky god. And I'm glad to know there's another way to say <laughs> yes. it. Well, it, it's still the Greek word, modern Greek word for sky, Uranus. And, and Uranus was castrated by his son, Kronos, one of the, the youngest of the tongues. Titans. And, and Why I, were these gods so mad at one it, another? Well, they keep doing things to hurt one another. I think it's interesting that it's the sons to the fathers. I, I have a theory about that, ah. that the Greeks. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the Greeks were the first civilization, really, as far as I can tell, to believe in progress, to think that it was a good idea to over to be better than your parents in that sense. So uh -huh. a lot of their myths are to do with uh, sons trying to fly higher than their fathers, as it were. The Icarus Daedalus myth is an obvious example, and Phaeton with the chariot of the sun. Um, and, you know, the Greeks could look across the Mediterranean and there they would see a civilization like the Egyptian one, which went on for four and a half thousand years without basically changing. Whereas the Greeks wanted to improve everything, to make everything better than the, the generation before had made it, which is, uh, we've inherited. Let me ask you, there's something interesting about that to me, because the Greek myths, at least in two places, sound like they, although they seem to acknowledge the introduction of technology into mm -hmm. the world, with the, the Prometheus story of yes. giving us fire, and fire is, I guess, our first technology, yes. but, and led to uh, the Bronze Age and that kind of thing, but... Um, the stories, there are at least a couple of stories, it seems to me, that show us being 
punished or looked down upon by the gods yes. for having technology or having curiosity. Absolutely right. And I think that it was a two-way street. On the one hand, the gods punished us for our presumption. The famous Greek word is hubris. Uh, but also that it's quite clear the gods were afraid. Uh, that Zeus said to Prometheus, you must not allow this new creation, these these humans, this anthropoi, you must not allow them to have fire. And Prometheus, who loved us because he fashioned us out of clay and he wanted us to be the best we could be, he was puzzled by this. And Zeus said, well, if we give them fire, they won't need us. They will supersede us. And I think it's pretty clear from the myth, and certainly from what poets and writers like the Shelleys, both both Percy Shelley, the poet who wrote Prometheus Unbound, and, and Mary Shelley, who wrote the Frankenstein story, of course, which is subtitled A Modern Prometheus. Um, the, the fire that Prometheus stole from heaven against Zeus's orders and gave to us was, as you say, the fire that flickers, the, the fire that melts and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and roasts and toasts and so on, but it was also the divine fire. The, the fire of self-consciousness, mm. the thing that makes us different from animals. And all creation myths, I think, have to grapple with why human beings who are so close to animals, we do the same thing, we reproduce, we eat, we defecate, we, you know, we clearly are animals, and yet we have this language, we have this ability to understand differences between other animals. We can be fairly certain that a kangaroo doesn't know anything about an armadillo and wouldn't be interested. Whereas we are curious about everything. Um, but what to me is truly fascinating, Alan, and this relates to our own scientific endeavours, is that, is that the gods were right in a sense. Prometheus gave us fire. This gave us a divine spark, uh, an inner creative fire, as well as the ability actually to harness flame and to use it for technology. And we built cities and we traded and, and slowly we didn't need the gods. They became a sort of trace memory. We didn't really live in fear of them anymore. We lived far more in fear of, of other tribes and other emperors and, and, and so on. You know, we lived a human life. And, and so the gods receded into, into a kind of memory. Now, we stand at the beginning of the 21st century, or at least <laughs> actually nearly a fifth of the way through it, and we can be absolutely certain, I don't think anybody can doubt this, that by the end of this century, we, like Prometheus, will have created sapient, sentient entities of one kind or another, whether we call them bio-augmented robots or whatever we choose to call them, with driven by artificial intelligence. Nobody doubts that we will have created such things, and we will be faced with exactly the same quandary that Prometheus and Zeus faced. Some of us, the Prometheans, will say, give these creatures, these entities we've created, self-consciousness, the ability to decide on their own um, life strategies, if you like, give them a kind of life. And others, like Zeus, will say no, because if we do that, they might get rid of us. They might not need <laughs> us, their creators. We are faced with precisely the problem that Prometheus faced. You know, it's interesting you, interesting you bring up the word hubris, because I was interviewing a scientist about 20 years ago about exactly this question. Yeah. Um, it's it's a common question that people have, and I passed it on to him. He had invented a robot. Mm. And I said, so how will you feel if the robots you invent, you work on, if generations of them from now have the ability to make up their own minds about things and decide to replace humans? Yes. They don't need humans anymore. How will you feel about having done that? And he said, 
well, would I win the Nobel Prize? <laughs> it's a very human response. <laughs> but <laughs> we know how Zeus felt about it. He saw that Prometheus had given mankind fire and he chained him to the Caucasus Mountains and had a, an eagle come and tear his liver out every day. And because Prometheus was immortal, it grew back overnight and this torture continued and continued. And it's no accident, I think, also, Alan, that around the time that the Enlightenment had started to push away the last cobwebs of medieval ecclesiasticism and a total uh, theocratic way of looking at the world and everything and, and was releasing science and philosophy into free thought. Exactly that time, um, Beethoven wrote a Prometheus overture and Shelley, as I say, wrote Prometheus Unbound. And Mary Shelley wrote uh, Frankenstein because suddenly that myth, that idea that if there were gods, those gods must be like the Greek gods. In other words, capricious, mean, jealous, unkind, inconsistent, unfair. Yes, beautiful, noble, and wonderful, but, but essentially they'd be like the world. And if you look at the world, the world is beautiful, grand, absolutely full of love and majesty, but also full of cruelty, caprice, and unearned misery, uh, and squalor, and horror, and wickedness none of which can be explained any more than the beauty can be explained, except by the slow scientific piecing together of how things might have come, come to be. And when we were released from religion, we were able to see how sophisticated the Greek modeling, as it were, of existence was compared to the Hebraic one. Um, you know, you read the Greek myth, there's juice and wit and humor and delight and so many recognizable truths. And I can read the Bible back and forth. And yes, there are a few good stories. Unquestionably, Daniel's a good story and the Midianites and various other good battles going on. But mostly it's as dull as can be and doesn't have a ring of truth about it anyway. I think the book of Job's an especially good story it, to me. It is a fine be, story. I mean, cruel beyond because, imagining. Uh, it explores a, a theme that I haven't seen explored until uh, Woody Allen's movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which yes, is the idea <laughs> that bad people can do bad things yeah. and not feel remorse and die happy. Yeah. And we don't want to believe that most of no. the time because it, we want a sense of fairness. So we have... We have Raskolnikov. And yes. Oscar Wilde has ever put it uh, perfectly in the mouth of uh, Mrs. Prism in The Importance of Being Earnest um, when she tells Sicily that she is, do not speak slightingly of the three-volume novel, Sicily. In earlier and happier days, I wrote one myself. And uh, Sicily says, did it end happily? And Miss Prism replies, the good ended happily, the bad ended unhappily. That is what fiction means. Which is a line. <laughs> Let me put you on pause for a second because um, something I don't understand about the creation of the myths, mm. it sounded to me as I've as I read about it, that they were the creation of many people over much time. Yes. And yet there's this organization of thought that seems only to come from one head unless they were all gathered in a writer's room and they were pitching ideas and finally <laughs> arrived, it's a, <laughs> arrived it's at. It's a very good observation, that. yes. And, and the fact is everything we know about Greek myths, as we know about any culture, is either through their archaeology or magically through the Greeks. And this is why their myth mythological cycles are so exceptional, through writing. Because I think... what. 
what what makes the Greeks exceptional was the circumstance of history, which meant that their civilization rose at the same time as the alphabet arrived in the world, and and alphabetical writing, script writing, really arrived only. Um, 5,000 years ago. It's incredibly recent, as I'm sure you know. Language is only 50,000 mm. years or thereabouts. And, and So that in itself was a technological it was a, advance. Exactly. And the Greek word techne, which is a wonderful word from which we get technological and technique, and uh, that, that ability, that knack, that, that ability to think your way through a problem and transform it by using a tool of some kind, either a tool of the mind or a physical tool. It's a great word, isn't it? And and so we have Hesiod and Homer, the first two great poets. Uh, um, Homer, as most people probably know, we can't be sure he existed. He seemed to come from Ionia, the sort of eastern coast of what is now Asia Minor or Turkey. Um, was he blind? Was he one person or several? I think those who've read his two great epic poems, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, would say that there's clearly a single voice there. It's very hard to argue that there isn't. Um, and Hesiod, who wrote the Theogony, the birth of the gods, and he it was who laid out this family um, family tree of, of the primordial deities, the next generation of Titans, and the generation after that of the Olympian gods, the ones we're most familiar with, Zeus and uh, Hera and so on, and Aphrodite and Hermes, Apollo. Um, and uh, he he gave them their their, their full their, their full their full pedigrees their full family trees their genealogies and um, and so because of this other writers came along and they took bits of Hesiod and bits of Homer they put them together with local cult stories that they'd found and and they wrote them down. So what what is it about the Greek myths? that are relevant to us today? And don't we have our own myths that we've organized in one way or another? Well, do, we ha- do we have popular culture myths that, <laughs> in movies and that kind of thing? In popular culture, the Star Trek uh, stories, if you think of the original series, mm. there is uh, an exploration of civilizations where you could take the S off and say it's an exploration of civilization. What are these civilizations that the Starship Enterprise is there to discover? They tend either to be planets that are bestial and animalistic in their in their brutality or they are so harmonious they're full of kind of priest-like figures that there's no room for the human spirit and no juice and appetite to them and and kirk comes in to try and you know correct that imbalance and on the bridge of his own ship he is living out that because on his left hand side <laughs> is is the doctor bones who's all why you green-blooded monstrous spuck and you know he's he's all appetite and energy and physicality and there is the cold Spock who's all reason and order and in between Captain Kirk tries to be the perfect human being who has a bit of each who must use reason and order and science but must also recognize the human heart and its instincts it's almost as though we recognize as time goes on from the infancy of humanity to the present we recognize it seems that we have this dual nature. Yes. Uh, we have we have nurture and we have torture. Yes. Yes. Cap- those two capabilities Absolutely. at the same time. And we 
make up stories to explain That's that it. to ourselves. And, and the best way, if we understand anything, is to dramatize it. Is to make a is to make yes. a story of it. And that's why I think ritual and myth and ceremony are, and indeed drama are such valuable ways of telling the truth. Tell me about story. I want to hear about story from you because you're so involved in story. You act out stories. I do. I, you I, tell I, tell Greek myth stories. What 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 makes a story? work on another human for you? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's... Um, I always love... Uh, 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 in The Last Tycoon, the film version I know is the one with Robert De Niro playing a kind of uh, Irving Tholberg figure running running a big mm-hmm. studio. Um, and he's <laughs> there's an English writer who is having a terrible time. He's very literary. And he's a successful playwright and he's won awards and he's been bought by this big holiday, uh, Hollywood studio to, to write screenplays. And he's always, and, and the, the, the figure of uh, Star, the, the, the Thalberg, the producer figure, the, 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 the last tycoon himself, is constantly having to correct him and say, no, do it this way. And the English writer eventually says, look, I know how to write. I have written novels and I have written plays that have won awards all over Europe and all over the world. You're telling me how to write? I mean, I can't. And, uh, and he says, no, no, please. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, l- let me tell you something. He said, uh, and he then explains how he stands on the balcony of his office and looks across down on the sun stages of this massive lot. And he says, I know every movie that's being shot here. I know exactly what's going on. And so I like to stand here and when the sun sets. And two nights ago, uh, I heard the door of my, the inner door of my office open. Nobody comes into my office because Doris is there in the outer office. She won't let anyone in. It doesn't matter if it's Groucho Marx or Humphrey Bogart. Nobody gets in without she should ring the the, the, the device and, and buzz it and I will let them in. So I was fascinated and I stood still and I could hear somebody pacing into the room and I heard the, 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 a match being struck. And then I heard what sounded like coins being put on my desk. And then the the telephone was lifted. I could hear a voice breathe five minutes and then the phone went down and then the footsteps went and I heard the door being closed and I waited a while and I came out and I looked towards the phone and the English writer leans forward and says and what happened next he goes now you got it (laughs) he was telling him that movies are made of story and of saying what happened then I need to know and he just made it up on the spur of the moment yeah yeah that's great to write a story is an amazing gift and actually in a lot of my life I've cheated by by retelling Greek myths I'm telling stories you know I'm on giant's shoulders and one of my novels was a retelling of the Count of Monte Cristo because I just thought it was oh that's interesting I was going to ask you about your novels mm-hmm. and about what you were just saying about plot yeah. It, it seems to me that if plot doesn't come out of an understanding of who the people are, it's it's not much. It's more like melodrama. Yes. It's it's yeah. a, this happened, and and it's also this happened, and then that happened, rather than yeah. people making things happen. It's action, and and I'm afraid this is where I find it quite difficult. And I'm not going to make a point that it can be accused of being sneering or snobbish about it, but I do find these comic book uh, movies that are the ones that you know prop up Hollywood at the moment, the tent poles as they're called in the trade, I believe. Um, but I d- I find them completely uninvolving because I I don't see them as being in any way character driven in the slightest. I only see the action and the green screen and uh, all kinds of very clever technology and a few amusing things. Robert Downing Jr. is 
very funny as the Iron Man person that he plays. There's no question about that. But um, I can't get as involved in them as I can in in a in a in a truly character driven story. And 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 yet clearly. Uh, I'm in a minority as far as Hollywood audiences are concerned. And has that always been true? I mean, maybe it's a false memory, but I seem to think that in its grandest and greatest days, Hollywood was producing even its most popular films were still character-led in a way that they don't seem to be now. I get that impression too, but maybe uh, it it's just a function nostalgia. of our generation. Exactly. Yeah. We have to be careful. Uh, I mean, what? Why? why would we... Character is so interesting. Yeah. Why would we give up our interest in character for the for the sake of seeing flashing lights and explosions? Yeah, yeah, exactly. As Stephen lamented the loss of character in stories, I wondered if that loss told us about who we are, what we've become. With, with all our technical gifts, had we lost touch with an important part of ourselves? Stephen had an answer about us now, and it was straight out of a Greek myth when we come back. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Stephen Fry. You said something in an interview that really, um, really caught my attention when you said the internet is the exact replay of Pandora's box. <laughs> Yes. Well, that's how I remember it, because uh, I've always been fascinated by technology. And uh, in the 80s, I was literally the only person I knew who, who was uh, had an email address. Um, I, I, I emailed other people, but they weren't people I knew. They were just people I knew had an email address at university. I'm sorry we didn't know each other then, because I had one too. Oh, did you? There you are, yeah. you see. And, <laughs> and then one was able to join things like CompuServe, and, uh, and AOL yeah. started to, to started up, as you remember. And then in the early 90s, uh, it all began slowly to take off. And, and I remember as Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web came, came you know, much more the, the, the way that everybody was looking at the shop windows, as it were, through 
through through the world uh, using web pages and 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 email got more graphic and more you know you're more able to be uh, used for all kinds of things uh, i thought this is this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. It is all gifted. It's like a, an incredible city that, in which you, there are free art galleries and libraries and theatres and universities and people can learn for free and, and access all the knowledge and all the information and all the art and all the science of the world for free. And not only that, they can be in touch with each other. It was spectacular. We had such hope. Exactly. All the boundaries and all the borders and all the frontiers between us would melt away and we would finally understand each other and it would be an end to nativism and populism and the worst kinds of nationalism and so on. And as soon as we built a bridge to one another, there were trolls living under it. That beautifully put. Exactly Right. Well, as you probably know, the, uh, the, the Pandora myth is, is that uh, she was sent down as part of Zeus's punishment to mankind, really. And she was sent down to, to live with Epimetheus, Prometheus, his brother. And Zeus uh, gave her this jar. In fact, it's, it's often called a box. She was told not to look in it. And as we know, it's a bit like the Eve myth. She was the first woman and she was curious and she couldn't but open the box or the jar. And out flew all these leathery, wheeling, chattering, screeching, creatures flying about in her hair and her ears and then in a great whirlpool you know, up they went and settled down wherever man had habitation and they were illness and murder and lies and deceit and cruelty and barbarism and all the horrors and all the terrors of the world which before had been a kind of paradise and then she slammed the lid back on not knowing that there was one little creature left inside to beat its wings hopelessly against the inside of the jar and, and that creature was elpis which is Hope. Hope. So in the very story that punishes mm. us for having curiosity to find out what's in the jar yeah. or box, there's nevertheless something left in there. Yes. It's left that in, can, though. It's trapped inside forever. It's not allowed out. Looking at it from the human point of view, uh, if she only regained her curiosity, she would, as we have. Yes, she would go back and into she, the yes, box and a, find hope. That's a lovely thought. So that we would no longer need to be afraid yeah. of our own inventions taking over and doing away with us. Yes. Like, as the robots might, we, we fear someday. Interesting point. We exactly. would have hope that we would be smart enough. But do you think we'll be smart enough to outlive our own intelligence? I think um, we are smart enough to know that that's a risk, and we are smart enough to know that we should be smart enough. <laughs> we have the tools to act out our worst impulses. We, we do, yeah. And we are not so fast at developing tools for the other side of our character, it seems. It, it does seem that way, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's. I used to think that, well, everything casts a shadow. So even the internet that seemed wonderful was like a Pandora's box. It, it had a dark side, and when the lid was opened, the trolls flew out. And um, uh, and I thought, well, that's because everything, as it does in the physical world, it casts a shadow. When light hits it, it anything that exists, is, there'll be a shadow, and everything has this dark side to it. I remember saying to someone... Uh, the only thing I can think of that is a universal good that has no dark side is anesthetics for dentistry. And my friend said, <laughs> yeah, but just think of all those people who have been abused by dentists when they're under the ether. Uh, yes. I said, oh, you had to say that, didn't you? You had to ruin even that one. <laughs> and not only that, but I've, I've had a, a deep anesthesia 
that screwed up my memory for the next six months. Oh, I see. So everything does cast a shadow. I'm, I'm interested, because we're talking about communication, mm. and you, you write so beautifully, and and so um, with you, you, your output is huge as well. I'm interested in your writing process. Not what time do you get up and start <laughs> yes. writing. Yeah. Not do you write with a pencil or or yes. or pen. I'm interested to know what your thought process is. I get the impression that you subscribe to the same idea that I do. That it's important to let everything out. Yes. Exactly. In the first draft, anyway. Yes, the, the, the painter Miro had a great line when, when asked about how he made a picture, and he said, I take a line for a walk. And, and, <laughs> and I, I think a bit like that in a way, and, and, and I do definitely agree that everything has to get out. I mean, after all, if you were a sculptor and you were doing, you know, I don't know, the David or something, obviously, you know, let's say, you know, a human form, um, you wouldn't start with the toe and try and make the toe exactly right. And, oh, look, there's the nail, and there the, are the little lines on the sort of knuckles of the toe, and there's a few hairs sprouting out between them. And, you know, you would you would just make a, get a mess of clay and then shape it slowly into a shape that looked like a human and then you'd refine the foot and then eventually you'd refine all the little details and I personally for me it's the same I have to get words down so that I can attack them and make them better but if I and I think most people often I speak to people as I'm sure you do who say oh I've always wanted to write a book and I've started or a play or whatever it might be and I've written you know the first scene or the first chapters and, and then I get stuck and, and I say, well, that's the time when you have to keep writing. And it doesn't have to be as good as you believe those first mm. two chapters are. Because I'll bet, actually, you'll throw those first two chapters away and it'll be the stuff you write afterwards that you keep. Most importantly, it's, I think it's important not to put down the first sentence or the first scene <laughs> and then wh whack away at it trying to make it perfect. No, exactly. That's my point. Because that's like making the toe perfect and it's uh, pointless. You've got to get the shape. Right. You, you, you get lost working on the toes and you never get the whole figure out. There, uh, I think that as you let stuff come out, yeah. whatever it is, good or bad, and not judge it, mm. there's an associative process that with each thing that comes out, it's hooked on to something else associatively that also gets to come out that you didn't know was in there. Yes, yes. And you're not in touch with it until it's all laid out on the paper or on the screen, and now you can hack away at it. I think you have to divide it into two, two modes. One is totally subjective, and the other is totally objective and yes. editorial. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Can't mix them, right? Yeah. Now, you could help me with something. I, there's a myth or a story whose origin I can't figure out. About 40 years ago, I read in an article that I can't find anymore mm -hmm. that there's the story of the shepherd who keeps his goats in a, sh in a cave, and he has a big rock guarding the cave, during the night and at daylight, he lets the goats out, but he only lets the weakest, scrawniest, least useful goats first so that if anybody's out there throwing rocks at them, they won't hit his valuable goats first. That's very And he'll save the value. So to me, that's the string of associations coming out of the cave and you have to let them all out, the good and the bad, yes. before you can be editorial and throw rocks at it. 
Uh, have you ever heard that myth? I haven't, but I like it. But isn't that an interesting idea about how you yeah. can't editorialize, you can't batter what you've written until yes. you, you've had a chance to let it all out? And it's it's... The famous Hemingway quotation is not dissimilar to that as an idea, which is that you can write drunk, but you have to rewrite sober. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, the first thing that yeah. comes out can be all part of some flurry of emotion and madness yeah. and all the rest of it. But when you editorialize, then you've got to be stone cold sober and and, and use reason and 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 allow the connections mm -hmm. to form maybe in, in different ways like that. I don't know if that's the same idea, but it's a good quotation. When you rewrite. Do you become the reader, or do you just please yourself? How, how do you how do you think about it's that? It's such an interesting question. I think you, to some extent, I do become the reader. I often rewrite um, best when I've uh, had to print out what I've got because obviously, since you know, since the eighties, we've mostly a lot of us have, have written entirely with keyboards and screens and and with the, all the. Uh, both the luxury and the self-indulgence that a word processor allows. But uh, I find if I print it out and then read it out loud, um, mm. that's when my, I, I'm at my best in, in hearing it. And, and maybe that's because I am picturing myself reading it to someone and I'm suddenly hearing what sounds hollow and false and what sounds real and what sounds overdone. And, and you do so. that even, even with a novel? I do, yes, yeah. And also I, I do love the rhythm in language, and I, I think it's an important part of it, even in, in prose uh, of, of any kind that's there to, to try and persuade, seduce, beguile, charm, or delight a reader, that there is a, there is a sound element to it. And most readers vaguely hear it tinkling in the back of their head, whether, whether there's a rhythm or a, 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 an accidental rhyme that's ugly and inelegant, you know, and you mm -hmm. have to get rid of those, I think. Certainly, my favourite writers are always very, have a kind of music to them. It can be a very, uh, a very stark and bleak music in some cases of writers who are not ornamental, but it, it's nonetheless a kind of music. And, and, and I, I wonder if um, actors have a special sense of the the person reading it, or yes. the person hearing it, because not because we're accustomed to playing in front of an audience so much as playing with other actors yes. who we have to respond to. That's a very good point, isn't it? I wonder if that's true. It, hmm. I mean, it, I certainly, um, I've attended to some rules that I've picked up, not rules, but sort of processes that I've picked up over the years. P.G. Woodhouse, I remember reading once, he said in a letter, or, or maybe in a, one of his essays, he said that uh, his experience in musical theatre in New York in the, uh, in the teens and early 20s, when he, all the way up to the 30s, when he wrote a lot of Broadway shows, he wrote the books and sometimes the lyrics with, with Gershwin and Kern and, uh, and, 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 you know, the greats. And um, he said, when I write a novel, I like to think of each character is the most brilliant uh, actor available on Broadway, and therefore oh, very oh, played by the most interesting and actor, th and therefore the most expensive. So, uh, yes. if I'm going to bring him in in Chapter Two, uh, he's paid his full fee, so he might as well be used in Chapter Seven and Chapter Twelve and Chapter Fourteen. <laughs> and 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 he finds this very because it gives it means his plots have a wonderful symmetry and economy. He doesn't waste characters. He he you know that they will return and they have a role, and it, it gives that terrific sense to his comedies that they have this feeling. So when them. the bellboy rings the bell, yes, 
Exactly. And says a message for you. <laughs> exactly. You give him a life. You don't yeah. just have him be a functionary. Exactly. I think that's one of the things we adore about Dickens. Yeah, I think Dickens has that too. You yes. always feel that once he's hit upon a character with their way of speech and their mannerisms, he's not going to let them go. He's having too much fun with them. So I, I, I don't want to keep you. I know you have to go yeah. to a, an event tonight where you have to make up something to say. I do. Which I think this broadcast actually proves that you don't have to make anything up. You could just get up and open your mouth and start talking to the people who are there who will be delighted to hear you. But before we go, before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. And we, they're basically... Roughly something to do with communication, mm -hmm. and they just ask for seven quick answers. Okay. Are you, are you game? I'm very much game. Okay, number one. What do you wish you really understood? Mathematics. Ah. What do you wish other people understood about you? That I'm much simpler than I appear. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> there are so many. I'd like to say, would you like, would you like to sleep with me? Because I have such a low opinion of my physical self that I would find that a remarkable question. Um, but that's just too too deliberately self-deprecating. I fear. <laughs> well, that's the strangest answer I ever got. To this. <laughs> how do you how do you stop a compulsive talker? Ah. Being, being one myself, I have to be very much on the alert for other people's signals to tell me to shut up. But generally speaking, I, I uh, stop a, a compulsive uh, talker by saying, oh, stop, stop, stop. I've just had this extraordinary thought. Um, oh, what a wonderful yeah. way to do it. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to remember that. And usually flattery is the answer because you could say, something you said has just made me think of something extraordinary. Ah, yes, yeah, that's very helpful. Mm. I, I have actually done that. Um, so next, is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Well, I mean, it's, it is hard, and I know this is people are going to groan, but your current uh, gangster-in-chief, I'm afraid, uh, arouses <laughs> nothing in me. But, uh, you know, I, I'm sure like many Americans, uh, I wake up in the morning with a sort of feeling of hot lead in my stomach, a kind of weight of despair that such a brutal foolish, unsympathetic person can be okay. in such number a great six. office. <laughs> Let's move on to number yes, six. Sorry about that. <laughs> Any Republicans listening? <laughs> uh, how, how do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> it would be. It would be on the phone, I suspect. <laughs> in person? Well, yeah, generally speaking, I, it has been, you know, when when friends, people I love have died or had an accident yeah. or something. I've tended, where necessary, if I've felt I've had to inform someone, it has been the phone, yeah. It wouldn't be a text, I can tell you that. That would be somehow brutal. <laughs> so the pigeon is out. Yeah, pigeon is out too. <laughs> what, the last question, what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? I think meanness, uh, I mean meanness of spirit, not of money necessarily, but unkindness. Uh, uh, seeing someone I, I, I trusted be, being really unkind, I, I'm very 
Yeah, there's a character in Chekhov who's like this. Is it, is it Masha in the, not the Masha in the Three Sisters, but the one in, in Uncle Vanya who's, who says, I, I can't bear rudeness. And I remember seeing an actress play it so brilliantly because she did that wonderful Chekhovian thing. She actually wanted to tell the person. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I actually can't bear people being rude. She said it in such mm. a straight way that I thought, oh, that's what Chekhov means with all those lines like that. It's not like, I can't bear rudeness. I don't like people being rude, you know, when actors over <laughs> She really meant it. And I thought, yes, I'm actually the same. I, I've actually had to end lunches where there's a producer friend of mine who who is just monstrous to waiters. And and I've had to say to him, I can't eat with you if you talk to waiters like that. So mm. It's not heroic on my part. It's not that I'm a, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, communitarian socialist who believes that we should invite the waiter to sit down and join us at the meal. I just think you could treat them nicely. And uh, and, and that, I, I find it very hard to like someone who, who is... Well, this has been a wonderful <laughs> conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry it can't go on Me too, Alan. Next time I'm in London, I'm going to call you up and we can continue. It's a deal. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much, Stephen. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Having a conversation with Stephen Fry is a great gift. You can give yourself the gift of Fry by reading his books and listening to him on his own podcast. You can find his latest book, Heroes, as well as links to his podcast called Great Leap Years on his website at stephenfry.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Sherry Turkle, who's a fan of technology, but... What I'm interested in and what the computer can never do, the robot can never do, these empathy machines that are being built can never do, is give you the feeling that I'm here for the duration to keep trying, because I've had human experiences too, and loss and pain, and and I'm going to try to relate mine to yours. Say, I'm not anti-technology, I'm pro-conversation. Sherry Turkle has done research on the threat that our phones and screens pose to the old-fashioned power of face-to-face conversations. Now she sees some glimmers of hope that her message is being heard. Sherry Turkle, next time on Clear and Vivid. 
To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.